Thanks for downloading Ethical Theory Review. Today's book is How to Do Things with Emotions, The Morality of Anger and Shame Across Cultures, and the author is Owen Flanagan. Owen is the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and also Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. And he has lots of great books. The Geography of Morals uh, was the one before this, uh, and he's well known for the varieties of moral personality and other books. Um, so, Owen, in the book, uh, just to give a brief intro for listeners, uh, you bring to bear information from evolutionary psychology, philosophy, anthropology, and straight-up psychology, and you focus on two emotions, anger and shame, but I think the general project is to show how other emotions, too, you could do. If you look at any emotion, say anger, there's a lot of complexity. There's a genus of anger, but then there's a, there are different species, different kinds of anger. And then when you start looking anthropologically at different cultures, there are different scripts for expressing these different species of anger and norms about when they're, you know, statistically expressed or accepted or ideally expressed. And I'd say the general point of the book is that by bringing all this information into play, we can get out of, you, you quote Alistair McIntyre, we can get out of being imprisoned in our own cultural uh, milieu and be aware of the variety of ways you could or, or other people could and do have and express different emotions. And then you get into questions of then all after you get into that, you know, how could we pick which one of these would be better or could we change and, and questions the normative assessment. But the first thing that I think is really exciting about the book is it's just a recipe. You focus on anger and shame, but someone could do it on like hope or some other emotion and ask, what are the different species of the emotion? Uh, what are the different ways they're expressed in cultures? Um, so that's an intro. I thought we could start with anger and maybe you could say something about uh, some of the species of anger and especially you pick out payback, revenge anger or pain passing anger as kinds species you're not too excited about, uh, but there are other kinds. So I thought maybe we could just, you know, sort of focus in on anger and sort of what's the stuff you bring to bear and how does it bring out this sort of complexity to the types of emotion? Uh, that's, thank you for uh, starting that way. And, and yes, just briefly to say something about um, uh, other people I've talked to about the uh, project haven't picked up quite on exactly what you were just starting with, which is that, you know, the basic idea, and it goes back you know, as you mentioned, to the it's something I start to do in geography of morals. Is uh, I love that McIntyre quote where McIntyre says, you know, that we would never expect someone who was a philosopher of physics not to know the be the latest and the best in physics, and we would never expect a philosopher to be able to do philosophy of law if they didn't understand the law. But we allow moral philosophers to go forward talking about how people ought to behave and what is the good life without them knowing anything, as he puts it, about sociology, anthropology, psychology, and so on. They just need to know about how trolleys work. Um, so the, um, so the, the general idea here is, uh, as before, you know, McIntyre says, without this kind of information, we're in danger of being imprisoned by our own upbringing. And the information, he says, is about what he calls the varieties of moral possibility. And I love that concept, right? Because what happens sometimes in social and ethical life is that we are so used to the ways that we live that we come to think of them as natural and normal and our, and where we get stuck, we can just think, well, that's just the way things sort of are around here. 
But I think one of the things that I found for my work in cross-cultural philosophy and cross-cultural psychology and anthropology is that you can sometimes see that there's radical variation in the way humans sort of, as it were, construct their lives. And that sometimes the other ways of doing things can provide at least maybe models for how we might get out of problems that we're in the middle of. So that brings me to this, your question about anger. So, so one of my thoughts, and it's, and it's a starting observation, and of course someone could disagree with this, but I claim that when I look at the world now, uh, and I'm 73 years old, I've never lived in angrier times. I've lived in other times where there's been anger, a lot of anger uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. There was uh, you know, a huge amount of um, work in civil rights. There was the anti-Vietnam War. There was feminism. There was gay rights. And, uh, but there was a lot of hope. The anger was mixed with a kind of hopefulness. And I just started to feel that in the modern world, or at least in the America that I live in, I saw a kind of frenzied anger, a kind of general irritability and pissiness of not listening to each other, um, maybe exacerbated, we can talk about this later, by you know, the availability of certain kinds of social media instruments, but a kind of a, a cruel and a dismissive anger, not respecting the other. And I noticed that what would happen is when I talked to friends you know, about this, they would sometimes say, well, you know, it's natural to be angry. Anger comes, as it were, with the equipment. And I agree with that. It does come with the equipment in a certain sense. But what I was aware of from some other work I've done, that other cultures have both thought about anger differently than we maybe think about it in North America. And they also um, think about it normatively and actually try to, as it were, educate the youth so that they follow different norms and scripts of anger. So to answer your first question, so that as far as the genus, and you're totally right, I mean, anger is a genus, and there are all kinds of intuitive complexities, like is irritability or being irritated a kind of anger, or is it a fuel for anger, as the Stoics say. But what I found useful was to distinguish among several different species of anger. So one is a kind uh, that many people have talked about. Nussbaum, Martha Nussbaum, for example, thinks that this view, the um, payback or revenge anger, is sort of conceptually part of what anger means. She must mean for people in the, the lineage of footnotes to Plato or something like that. But um, so payback anger is just the kind where, you know, Brad hurts my feelings by saying something nasty and I zing you right back. It's very familiar to all of us. It comes quite easily, uh, and we all are uh, good at doing it. Um, Aristotle thinks that when a person downgrades another person, that kind of payback is an appropriate response. So it has some authority, or it's authorized within a certain philosophical tradition. A different kind of anger, which I think is more common than you might think, at least in America, is um, pain-passing anger. And pain-passing anger, the way I define it, is um, you feel angry and irritable uh, because something is wrong either with your life or something has happened, and you feel that you are allowed to ventilate your feeling and, as it were, uh, convey your unpleasant feelings to people that you work with or that you live with and so on and so forth. 
this is a tricky one. It, it has, I think, special permission from a kind of a, a, a psychologist named Carol Tarvis, I think is her name. She called this the ventilationist view. It re, it's related to views about you need to have catharsis. You need to express your emotions. It's about authenticity. And I think this is a, uh, I think we indulge that. kind. So the first kind I'm dubious about because it hurts people. The second kind I'm dubious about because it's very lazy and it's kind of narcissistic in its form. It's just because I feel pissy. I make the whole atmospherics pissy and damn it, I'm entitled to my feelings of being irritable and angry. Um, so those are the two kinds that I especially pick out as what I think are that we should watch out for and are, are dubious. And if we got rid of those to a certain extent or modified them, um, our lives might just be somewhat more pleasant. So those are the two bad ones. Let me stop there for a second. Yeah, no, and that's, and I mean, so one thing that you do too, uh, I think that's right. That means you divide these different types of anger and talk about which ones, like, and I think at least the, some people might, you know, actually be in favor of the revenge anger or the ventilating view. Um, but I think the way you present it, a lot of people might think, okay, I'm not super happy about those forms of anger. I'm nervous about them. Um, maybe there are other kinds I'd want. But one other thing I thought that was interesting that comes up sort of a little bit later on is that you describe these two cultures, one in Madagascar and one in Indonesia. And you idealize on them a little bit. But the, I think the way I thought of this was you can look at actual other cultures and you can see some cultures have kind of way more anger or they, they make use of forms of anger that you would be surprised about. Uh, compared to your culture, and other ones might have way less anger. Um, and so I thought maybe you could bring in those two, because I, to me, that, um, in addition to making, you know, having us worry about the kinds of anger and whether we want to endorse them all the way maybe we are, yeah, looking at those cultures really gets you to see, wow, maybe we could, we could have a radically different way of living that would still involve people being socialized into being moral. Right. So, so, yeah, maybe if you could lay out. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. So what was, you know, part of the project uh, was to think through, you know, I didn't want to just use, as it were, philosophical theories, which, you know, like we know you can get the Stoics and the Buddhists sort of quickly on your side. And I'm not an, I'm not one of these people they call anger eliminativists. I mean, I mean, I'm in favor, as you know. I think it's fine to have recognition, respect, anger, and um, uh, institutional anger of the Black Lives Matter form. I think, you know, there might be things you want to think about. You might want to think about whether those ways of being uh, embed um, uh, payback, too much payback, um, as opposed to changing, for example, racist practices or racist people to make them non-racist for their, as it were, own good. But... I also um, decided uh, the year I was writing this, I had a wonderful year where I had been, you know, reading a lot about um, uh, uh, the philosophy of anger, but I also started to look into the anthropology and the psychology of anger. And so one of the things I started to do was look at, there was a paper that came out actually compared these two cultures. The one in uh, Indonesia is a group of people, uh, the, the Minangkabau, who uh, they think that anger is just terrible. It's the work of the devil. So they're one of these cultures which uh, in their, what is called in psychology, their ethno theory, they're able to articulate this to a certain extent. 
um, they can say things about um, anger. They just think it's extremely uh, bad. And um, what they use is shame uh, as the primary socializing emotion. Uh, now, um, and um, uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, they try to make children um, feel uh, ashamed of uh, inappropriate actions. And what was interesting to me, in, so they're one case where they use, they think anger is terrible. You should never get angry at children or you should never get angry at each other. There are other cultures like this, by the way. There's a famous book by Jean Briggs called Never in Anger, which is about some Eskimos, Utku Eskimos, who also um, theorize that anger is very, very bad. Now, this is interesting because um, in anthropology, people, you, most anthropologists say that most cultures privilege one emotion over others in the teaching of children how to be abide the norms. So this is a, a case where we do get that and shame is the preferred emotion. The other culture that I talk about uh, is in, uh, in Madagascar, off the coast of Africa, the Bara, and they actually use strong fear-inducing anger for the children um, uh, to socialize them. One of the main things that I found interesting about the article is that most of Western psychology will teach you that it'll really cause kids to be screwed up if you either use fear-inducing anger all the time, make them straighten out and fly right, as my dad used to say, or if you use shame all the time to uh, do that. And what I found interesting about the work in anthropology uh, about these cultures is they didn't show the usual sort of neuroses, maladjustment, juvenile delinquency, addiction disorders, eating disorders that you might expect to see elsewhere. So they're an interesting case because you're not only getting the fact that there's, you know, it's just that different cultures have come upon different ways of thinking about how to mold children into good human beings. And uh, there are some cases where these very powerful emotions, which we think probably rightly can be very dangerous, they can be weaponized, um, are, are, are okay. They work out okay. I'll guess I'll just put it that way. Yeah, that's, I mean, because that gets at one of the things that I was interested in then sort of when we've got at that point in the book, we, you're, you've introduced different types of different species of anger. And we might, and the other thing I thought I'd mention um, is that in the discussion of evidence about the types of anger and the scripts that you people use to express anger and the norms for anger in the United States, you emphasize and you do a good job of laying out, there's a lot of diversity in the United States. And so we might have, if you do, if you look at the evidence, there might be dominant, say, scripts for expressing anger. It, but there's also a lot of variation. And one thing I thought was interesting about that one benefit of doing this kind of work is you can start as an individual, realize, I think, I mean, probably there's just, you know, psychological differences in neurodiversity and things like that, where you could realize, oh, I realize I sort of do anger this way. Like I, I'm closer to like the Japanese character, the thing that they, typically identify with that culture. Right. And that's a sort of uh, useful aspect of this too, is that to see that there's this internal diversity. But when you, after you've introduced these two different cultures and you, and you made the point you just made where it doesn't look like there's a case to be made that doing anger one way in the socialization of children or using shame instead of anger, it's not clear that 
there's evidence that one is good from the point of view of promoting well-being over the other. And it doesn't, so it looks like it's sort of underdetermined. And so then you got into other, how could we decide whether the way we're operating now with this emotion, either individually or as a group, yeah. good or bad. And so, I, so, and that, I, so maybe if you could say more about how you try to, you try to sort of wrestle with that question and what kind of different resources from philosophy or, you know, how could we try to think about that? Yeah. Good. That's very helpful. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I think about early on is once you make a taxonomy of the different kinds of anger, you know, and, and you hope that they're familiar to your reading, your audience, like that people understand, you know, either that they uh, are prone sometimes to engaging in payback anger or revenge anger, that they are prone uh, to uh, sometimes maybe if they're brought up in a certain way, believing that they're completely entitled to their emotions and can ventilate them whatever way they want and so on and so forth. And then, you know, moving on, maybe, you know, many of us are familiar with instrumental anger of the sort that I also distinguish, you know, that's where the kindergarten teacher or says there'll be no, there'll be no uh, recess today unless you behave yourself. They're not really angry, but it's just a way of restoring order. But then of course there's recognition, respect, anger, where you, really do treat me as a deplorable and I have every right to ask you for a restoration of my dignity and especially then for causes that have to do with systemic racism or sexism and so on and so forth. Those seem to be perfectly acceptable. What I, one of the ways I try to think about these things, so there are several different things. So one, one way, as you point out, that you could use both the cross-cultural philosophy and the anthropological diversity is to have therapy of a certain view, which is this view. It's the view that emotions are like reflexes. Your emotions are kind of like pupil contractions to life. They are what they are, and you can't possibly control them. Yeah, so, so the overall idea is maybe therapeutic. So one idea you might have is this. Well, if I have the view that emotions are things that are unchangeable, I'm just going to have whatever emotions I have. Well, that sort of might be true once you're well-formed. I mean, in the sense that you're so brought up to be a certain way, it might be really, really hard. But if you think it's not possible for persons to respond differently than you are doing, you can easily see how you could do different things. Now, so that's number one. Just the diversity of philosophical views or anthropological views just means that there's a possibility space that you or your people have not explored. Although, as you point out, there's huge variation in all complicated countries, multicultural countries, um, because, you know, uh, as you say, you know, I, I have trouble, had trouble in the book at certain points because you want to say on the one hand what the anthropological evidence says, which is that German and American parents meet children's anger with anger and escalate until it, something happens. <laughs> Japanese parents meet children's anger with something different like uh, not engaging, refusing to engage, what the behaviors used to call extinction, something like that, wanting to leave the room. But of course, there's variation in both countries. There's a lot of variation. The other thing, though, so, th so that's where the diversity comes in. Another thing that I call upon uh, readers to think about is that I'll sometimes ask audiences this uh, to my students, for example, or when I'm giving a lecture on this topic. I'll say, 
think about sort of your life in terms of all the times that you did get right back at someone for hurting you. I want to know how many times you left that situation feeling instrumentally successful. Like, did, were you a winner? Did you get what you want? And then secondly, tell me how you felt about yourself morally. Did you do as the Seneca, you know, Seneca says will happen? Did you say something that you shouldn't have said that you don't feel too good about? And it's interesting when I get, when I ask at least my students that they think that they lose on both measures most of the time. And that seems to me a good point, a way that you can put together the analytic distinctions I make with an observation about success and maybe want to do something like self-work. But, you know, for most of these things, one has to use the evidence of the different ways of doing them as possibility proofs that if the culture really thought it was going down, it was doing something the wrong way, an emotion like anger the wrong way, that it wasn't being productive, there's at least alternative possibilities to think that through. It isn't like in the book, just to then conclude uh, your question, um, it isn't like in the book I come up with any kind of full-on theory about how to do anger and shame, um, although I think there are some kinds of anger that are suspect, namely the pain passing and the um, uh, revenge or payback anger that we should really watch out for and we would be better off if we really reduced uh, the amount of time we spend engaged in those kinds of uh, daggers back and forth and ventilating. Yeah, I mean, one other thing that comes up that I thought was interesting is that, you know, you talk about, it came up just now with the United States and you talk about, well, okay, for a lot of us, we're in multicultural environments. And it's, you know, even more so if you start moving around. And another thing I was thinking when I was reading that is that there's a lot of interesting stuff in sociology about different sociological formation processes, like their theories of individualization. And so I've been reading up on there are sociologists who think the individualization process that we associate with Western modernity to some extent is taking place in China right now. And so there's lots of people moving to urban areas, uh, you know, breakdown of sort of some traditional local communities. And so I thought, I mean, that's one interesting thing is that you, you, you know, the book, obviously you could ask what sort of anger script would we want to adopt or how would we want to, you know, get more reflective about our emotions and maybe correct them or change them. You could ask that, you know, in a, in any culture. So anyone can read this book, but probably a lot of people reading the book and that would listen to this podcast are in a, in a multicultural environment under conditions of modernity. Uh, a lot of, you know, probably a lot of people live far away from their parents. I mean, so there's just lots of these common conditions. And I think it's interesting where you, one thing you frame is that, so we, we could say, we want to think about which, what, how to do emotions while under those conditions. Yes. Um, and I guess one thing, I don't know uh, what, if you may say, but it just struck me given that you're, I've seen in your other books too, you're, and, and I agree, I really like Alistair McIntyre's stuff, especially when you read his early stuff, because he's always been looking at these different cultures. He's been a very aware of psychology and things like that. But I associate to some extent with someone like McIntyre is a little bit more worried about the effects of us entering into a multicultural individualist society. And you get a picture that he thinks um to be sort of well-raised morally and aspire to having something like moral knowledge and not just be shouting at each other and emoting. 
we, we would need to be in something closer to monocultures. Yeah. I don't, anyway, I don't know. I just sort of was curious what you thought about that and that you seem in all your work much more positive about multicultural environments, even though they can be confusing uh, and hard to navigate. But I, I don't know if you have any thoughts. No, about no, I, I, I thank you for thank you for that, because, uh, yeah, um, Alistair has been one of the great influences in my life. And he and I differ at that point, but I really get what he think, why he thinks that way. So let me just say a little bit about that. So, uh, in fact, I just was corresponding with him recently. He's now 93 years old and he's still, he's still working hard and thinking hard. And unfortunately he's suffering some of the, the slings and arrows that come with being elderly. He told me, but he is just a remarkable person. But I think you're exactly right in uh, the way you, on the one hand, um, Alistair has been always attentive to the sort of uh, diversity of options, but he usually comes to a point where he gets concerned about it being a cacophony. Um, and I think that's right. Um, I don't, uh, I, I get why he thinks that. So let me just say a little bit about that. So one, one problem that I do try to talk about in the book a little bit is uh, I think about this method, which we philosophers, of course, learn growing up, comes from Aristotle and then Rawls, of course, helped perfect it, the method of reflective equilibrium. You know, so, you know, and what is that? Well, we philosophers all know that what we do is we take, you know, we say Owen got mad at Brad and hit him over with the head with a frying pan. Huh, there's something wrong with that. What is wrong with that? That was excessive. And then we, you know, we, we eventually coordinate our judgments about um, uh, uh, our intuitions, our judgments with our principles and our general background theory. Now, what do you do in a culture which has a has multiple background theories? And there is some psychological work about this uh, that uh, Bacha Mesquita, who's a really good cultural psychologist, has done with her colleagues with immigrants and what they find, at least in Belgium, is that, you know, when different immigrant cultures come in with, of course, different ways of different norms and scripts for doing the emotion, shall we say. And what they find, at least in Belgium, is that the immigrants change their, at least outside the house, they change how they do emotions within three generations to conform to the majority one. Now, you could just say, well, that's the empirical regularity, but what does that mean? Well, you know, I'm a native New Yorker, so I can say this. Well, you know, if everybody who gets off the boat at Ellis Island becomes, as it were, enacts New York style anger and rudeness norms, then you just think, well, that's a loss. You know, <laughs> why did we turn out to be, why didn't we learn from the Buddhists and the Confucians and the Japanese people, you know, to, to sort of watch change a little bit the way the zingers fly? So there's an, there's an actual, you know, what I would say is an actual empirical problem, which is that the causal patterns of the way multicultures work out and who wins has a lot to do with the size and the power, you know, numerical and power majorities will determine, you know, which scripts win, not necessarily their moral quality. Um, and, uh, but I guess I'm more... I'm, I'm more re resigned than McIntyre to the fact that we just will live in multicultural worlds. So damn it, we have to figure out the way forward. One other thing I'll say is that there is a method that our friend PJ Ivanhoe 
He likes it, but I think it's chaotic. Um, I call it super wide reflective equilibrium. And this is where like everybody comes under the circus tent and we all sort of test out our, you know, the Buddhists and the Shinto people and the people from Madagascar and the people from Indonesia and Muslims and Catholics. And everybody gets to sort of publicly talk about what their norms and scripts are. But I don't see how you bring it all into some kind of equilibrium because in the background, there are very powerful views about what it means to be a good person, what it means to be a self, what it means to be one of us. So it's a it's a serious problem. But I'm maybe the difference between Alistair and, and me is that um, when he gets to the point of thinking really hard about what will become of norms, commitments in multicultures, he sees more chaos and a cacophony than I at least hope will. Yeah, no, that's interesting. No, and I, I mean, I, the other person that I wanted to bring up uh, and to sort of segue to the, the second half of the book on shame is uh, Bernard Williams. And so in some ways I was thinking, you know, Williams has for independent reasons, he's not a fan of moral theories trying to establish the universal uh, truth about the, the, about the moral facts. And he wants us to focus more on thick terms, where in some ways that might connect up with the, the focus on emotions. But I was thinking of his stuff where he thinks that to some extent, kind of philosophy, and then I think strands of our moral culture, if we're talking about the United States, that emphasize guilt and certain other moral ideas that are inherited from Christianity and maybe get rationalized in Kant. He thinks that there's a sort of fantastical dimension to those. And so then I think his strategy was, well, let's go look back at Greece and especially the Homeric Greeks before the influence of Aristotle. And you can see that there was a, a way they understood agency that was connected to the way they, they thought shame was important. And Williams thinks by studying the Greeks, I think one of his thoughts is we could actually become aware that we actually also do care about shame and the kind of agency they emphasize. But we can't really see that because of the way we talk about ourselves, at least in philosophy. Um, but then, so you, for an, in a very different way in the second part of your book, want to push back against philosophic and also the interesting psychological mischaracterizations of shame or sort of maybe you could think, well, shame's a genus and they, they're picking one little species and they're, they're saying shame's bad. And... So anyway, I, I, but I, so I thought I could, you know, invite you to say a little bit about this sort of mischaracterizations of shame and philosophy and psychology you combat, and then maybe we could get into why, what you're thinking when it comes to maybe shames, there's a good form we could, we could rehabilitate that maybe we already care about, or maybe we could start to care more about or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, 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 extremely helpful. Yeah. So Again, I mean, what you're saying is just very helpful to me to even think about uh, as the author what my project is. So like you said at the very beginning, there's the sort of uh, the view of the emotions is such that for any emotion, as you already said, you could sort of do this. You could, in fact, I've had an interesting semester with some students who are working on grief. And it's, again, that's a really interesting one because how different cultures do grief, um, how long the grieving process occurs. And it's, it's one of these fascinating things where there's, uh, there's the, the Cholby book on grief uh, that just came out. 
Um, and uh, then there's, you know, sort of confusion views on grief and how long mourning is. And there are different people who think just like they should get paternal leave, uh, maternal and paternal leaves when babies come, they should get grief leaves. But then the question is, how long should those be? This is an area where you really get, you know, lots of cultural differentiation of attitudes and, and also just about how one is supposed to behave uh, or, and feel. So, yeah, and like you mentioned, hope, uh, too. So with respect to shame, um, probably like you, because you've been doing this cross-cultural stuff as well for a while, you couldn't help but notice when you study, especially like Chinese philosophy or early Chinese philosophy, that shame appears a lot as a, uh, as a moral source. It's not quite like with the culture that I talk about um, in Indonesia, where shame is the only thing that, you know, Confucians use to obviously not, but um, it obviously has an important role uh, in the moral socialization of children. And, um, and then meanwhile, of course, just like you said, uh, you read Bernard Williams and work like shame and necessity. And you see someone like him saying, look at, um, there was a way that our ancestors in the lineage that we're part of utilized this concept, uh, this moral emotion in uh, organizing social life. And uh, it either is, you put it nicely, you could think of it as maybe recessive for us. It's not altogether gone, but you know, I'm going to help you. Williams is going to help us then remind us of the way Maybe it is still, as it were, in our blood and bones to some extent, but recessive. Um, at the same time, again, using just sort of our current predicament, I thought I noticed as I was thinking about Confucianism and Williams, uh, I also noticed that there was an awful lot of discussion in the press about political leaders who were completely shameless. You know, and again, there I was thinking about ideas like they have in Confucianism about rectification of names. You, you shouldn't call someone a leader unless they actually are a leader. You shouldn't call someone a civil servant unless they are a civil servant and concerned with it. And, and what reactions should people have for people who are not doing what they're supposed to do? It, it seems that shame is an appropriate emotion. So I started to think that we probably had underestimated its value and even our, the role of it in our common life. Then when I looked, Brad, at the psychology of shame and asked around, especially women would say to me, oh no, shame's like the worst emotion. And then they would give me a list of what it causes. And it causes addiction, suicide attempts, mental disorders, this, that, and the other thing. So when I started to excavate, because it is my nature, as you know, what was going on in psychology, I just saw that there a mistake had been made, shall I say, <laughs> that I think that the uh, that there was a, a sort of almost a perfect storm of what happened was that a certain strain of psychoanalytic thinking, um, which thought that shame was a serious problem and led to self-loathing, alongside certain empirical tests um, uh, that the, the, um, the, the main test for whether or not a person is shame prone or guilt prone, as you know, uh, your colleague, Corey Malley has written about this too, ask questions like this. So Brad just showed up at the Chaucer exam, but he forgot to read Chaucer. He got zero. What does Brad think? 
he thinks that I should have studied, I should have read <laughs> Canterbury Tales. Uh, th that's the guilt response. He thinks I'm a worthless, Brad thinks he's a worthless human being. That's the shame response. So my reaction there is that that's just a terrible, what, 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 that, is, what that emotion, if it is one, is picking on is something like a combination of extreme stupidity and um, self-loathing or something like that. I mean, so it just seemed to me that um, that was a way of like showing that we were outliers in the United States thinking that shame is so bad for you. It isn't so bad for you. And in fact, when you look at how shame operates already, it's, it, it's usually uh, uh, a, uh, a feeling that is associated with like, you, you know, it's, a, it's similar to guilt, but it tends to be a little bit more focused on character traits than just on actions. Yeah. And I mean, one thing I was interested in is that in the last chapter, I guess uh, it was interesting because you sort of come back to some of our contemporary uh, social phenomena. And so one thing I thought was really uh, neat about that, that I've always thought is like the beginning of After Virtue, McIntyre says, you know, this kind of crude emotivist view of, of moral language where when you say something's morally wrong, all you're doing is really just expressing a boo emotion towards it. And so you just thought that's all. We're not really making claims that are true or false when we say things are moral or immoral or good or bad. We're just venting out our feelings uh, and trying to kind of bully other people into doing things way that are good for us or something. And so McIntyre said, you know, what if that theory was true of, of our contemporary culture? So it wouldn't be true, true of all moral language everywhere. And so you sort of bring that back and say, and I, and I, cause I often, I just thought that was really right. When you go on social media and you look at, or just the talking heads on TV, the way I've noticed uh, just in the last maybe five years or 10 years, people have started saying, they'll say, oh, that person's disgusting or that, that thing they said is disgusting and people will, so they'll even use language that makes it clear they're expressing an emotion like disgust, which you don't think of as being particularly intelligent or having a sort of serious, but, and then, and so you look at that and then you segue to thinking about anger and the way anger is showing up in our current culture. And then there are people that maybe are sort of shameless. And so is that, so is your thought that what we could learn partially from looking at these different cultures of anger and being aware of the different ways of doing it. And also that in the case of shame, then we could come back and, maybe we won't reach universal conclusions like every human society should use anger and or of, of these types, you know, and or shame. But when we come back to our place here and now, we might be able to get some pretty good prescriptions about what might work better. Um, and I guess then I started wondering how would we get people to be more ashamed of being bad people. <laughs> that's one thing I started thinking is I, I started agreeing. Okay. I, that sounds for this. I'm sympathetic to this. We should tone down the anger. We can worry about social media is sort of leading people to either have more anger or act like they do or express it more. And it's, you know, we, I think people agree it's poisoning our political discourse. It's connected to probably polarization. And, but then I started thinking, how do we, get from here to there if we if we start thinking gee we'd rather have this other emotional repertoire um i don't yeah i don't know if there's an answer but no, I, that's, no, no, that's a great question 
Yeah. And in fact, I mean, I think the, 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 it's interesting. There was a, I don't know if you saw, uh, there was a, a review of the book with another book on shame in the New York, in the New Yorker a few days ago. That was very interesting. And it was all, almost all focused on shame. But um, she uh, ended up saying, well, you know, she worried that I think that this would involve sort of individual sort of therapeutic work. Like you work on, each person could work on themselves. Now, that isn't what I think. Um, but I mean, sometimes you could work on yourself, you know, to uh, uh, self-cultivate in the way that, you know, for example, uh, Confucianism or Buddhism uh, think. But sometimes these things require would require cultural change. And you, you, you kind of hope that we'll, we'll come back around, uh, you know, what the forces of that are, you know, I, I can't, I, I wouldn't dare overestimate the role of philosophy or philosophizing in that project. But I do, I, I guess I started to think I had two thoughts about that. One is that I, I actually thought it might be good if we, this is a sort of philosophical point. It might be good if we um, just stopped always saying that shame is terrible uh, for the following reason. One reason is that, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure about this move, but I do think that in a world in which people are increasingly secular, um, uh, you know, where people who say that they're none of the above to any of the religion questions, it's growing and growing all the time, then you might say, like we know this is an old philosophical question that goes back to the beginning of philosophy, well, then why be moral if there's not, as it were, you know, if God not, if God or gods neither justify the morality nor uh, uh, can warrant complying with the morality with promises of the hereafter, people don't leave, leave that. This is the old Nietzschean worry, right, about the things fall apart, nihilism, all you get is narcissists and egomaniacs. I like the idea, though Alan Gibbard, you know, has said that our morality is an anger-guilt morality. There's something to that. The Abrahamic religions are structured, as it were, that way. And maybe their philosophical form is to be an anger and guilt morality. Whereas, you know, moral violations are things in, that other people commit, are things that I can be appropriately angry about. And things that I do that are bad are things that I can appropriately feel guilty about, where guilt is anger turned inward. And, and Gibbard, of course, says there might be other moralities that do it differently. They might do fear and shame. So I think that one advantage to, as we find our bearings living in a world in which um, there is more and more secularity, is that we'll have to invest somehow social consensus or social contracts with a greater seriousness. Uh, that is, we'll have to say things like that we really do expect of a political leader that you be committed to truthfulness. And uh, if you're not, not only ought you to be ashamed of yourself, but we ought to be ashamed of having you as a political leader and ought not to even ever vote for you. So um, I think it's because we don't know yet how to do morality without the theological props that might make it difficult. Now, that's obviously going to be, I mean, I'm making a prediction about historical processes, but I do think that shame is a better a, a better emotion uh, uh, because it's, as I say, it's horizontal and not vertical. I mean, guilt has its home in, you know, bad actions that are, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, that are judged bad by a divine being and so on and so forth. Now, 
so I already see it trending that way because so many people, I didn't, I don't know how to follow these things, but I read things like this say, you know, the amount of use of shame over the last, you know, 10 years has been way, way up. I think that's because, and shamelessness has been way, way up. So I think it might be because we're starting to realize that there got to be some social norms in place that um, especially, I mean, I do worry. You've got younger children. I'm not a grown up, but, you know, I just think that I had role models when I was a kid. There were role models. And uh, I don't see that children could, there's, you know, people in politics just are just not particularly worthy on both sides of, uh, for role modeling. And that's, that's, we need that. Um, and um, so I don't know how that goes, though, is the answer on the shame side, how we would build that. Yeah, no, because the other person I was thinking of when I was reading uh, the second part of the book was uh, Anthony Apaya's book on uh, how moral revolutions happen. Yeah. So in that, roughly, he argues that the way that he has a bunch of different cases. One is the slave, is slavery in the United States. Another one's foot binding. He has these other cases where he thinks readers will agree moral progress has occurred. Yeah. And then his question is, what led to that moral progress? And he says, kind of in line with what you said is, well, it wasn't people getting together and arguing. And so, you know, someone like Habermas or some people have emphasized, you know, the role of there were coffee shops in Europe and people talked more. And maybe there's a good thing about the public sphere involving debate. That's true. But what Appy argues is that the way moral progress happens roughly is that some things just become beyond the pale, so to speak. So it's like a certain the way I think of this is at a certain point, you is not OK anymore to uh, be a racist and support slavery or make money from slavery in, in polite in society in certain groups of society. It was just, it was no longer acceptable. And so I was thinking that seemed in a way to me. And so he he calls it the honor code. And I think maybe that could be a little misleading because it implies shame is always connected to honor cultures. So I, and I noticed at a point in the book, you push back against that. So I thought maybe if you could say a little bit about what are honor cultures and what, and so there is this association of shame, honor cultures, but then I thought, you know, maybe like the Apia story, it doesn't need to involve what we think of as honor cultures. So I don't, I'm curious what you think about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Well, you know, uh, this is uh, Anthony, and that's a, that's a really nice book uh, to remind me of because, I mean, I know it. I know all of Anthony's work. But um, uh, you're right. It, there is this question about when does something become intolerable? And then there's almost like a phase shift. It's a little bit like, you know, the phase shifts in, I think they call them phase changes in physics, like when water goes to freezing, you know, or when water goes to boiling. It's just like, it's phenomenologically different and then it is in that new state until something else happens. Yes, yeah, so the cases of Chinese foot binding and slavery and stuff. Well, what? but regarding the, um, yeah, and so, you know, my former student, uh, Talmer Summers, has done really nice work on honor cultures. There are such cultures. Um, uh, we know about them, but I was interested in the, the one criticism, as you say, that people make about um, uh, uh, the use of shame is that it tends to go with those kind of honor cultures where, you know, the father has to, you know, kill the daughter if she was raped. And these are just horrifying um, things. 
Um, I didn't want to get deeply into that, but what I did, did end up doing was just reading a little bit around in the literature on that. And I say a little bit about it, um, as you say, late in the book. Um, it was simply that the, well, I guess there's two different things to say about it, as I recall. I mean, one is that um, shame does, shame is often weaponized. I, I do say that in the book. And and one of the things I think that was difficult for me to sort of express is if you think about when, you know, some people say, well, wait, in order to, um, you know, if you teach a child to be ashamed, your child doesn't share with the M&Ms with her sibling. And you say, you must share this M&Ms with your sibling. Uh, and uh, I don't want to, mommy. I don't want to. Well, you must. And then, you know, we all know how this works. We, you, we will all learn that sharing is its own reward. Playing with the Legos together is its own reward. But kids aren't innately there to, uh, you know, get that. And we might, of course, say to the child, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for not playing with your sister. Now, um, in those contexts, uh, shame is not weaponized, I don't think at all. It's just basically saying, this is the kind of thing, disposition, the disposition not to share the M&Ms of the Legos, is the kind of disposition I am informing you as an adult, you will have to work on. Luckily, you will find out later on <laughs> that you will enjoy, actually, most of the time, <laughs> sharing the Legos and the things. So um, there are some cultures and there are some honor cultures in which these things are uh, weaponized. But the data, at least I found from in many cultures in the Middle East, is that um, you just don't see any kind of systematic empirical connection between the two. Mm -hmm. that, that's all. Yeah, not, yeah. Not that there aren't instances. No, that makes sense. Um, all right. Well, before we, I usually wrap up, I want to ask, you know, kind of what you're working on next. And is, is there, are there books or things that have come out that you've been particularly interested in you'd recommend other people pay attention to? Yeah. So I've been, uh, you know, as I sort of um, been working through anger. So I think that uh, um, Maisha's book, which I just, my friend Maisha Cherry's, her book, The Case for Rage, where she defends Lordy and Rage, I think is an interesting and important book. Um, and, um, you know, I think, uh, what I like about it, besides that Maisha has just been really thinking hard about, um, race, racism and the role of anger in anti-racist practices. Um, uh, I, I do think what she, um, she does some very nice things in that book. A couple of involve, um, you know, there's a, there's a mood in some of Martha and Nussbaum's wonder, also wonderful work on anger where Nussbaum thinks that uh, the payback idea is conceptually part of the concept of anger. And um, I think, uh, uh, and then also uh, what uh, Martha Nussbaum says sometimes is that she also thinks that we think that the effects of anger will be somehow to restore. There's a magic wish that we have, that it will restore me to my pre-rape self or my uh, the person who didn't, you know, my brother didn't die in the murder or something like that. Um, and I think Maisha and, and what Martha in what she calls transition anger hopes for is that we actually feel anger, but then metabolize it to, so it becomes love and compassion. And I think Maisha uh, pushes back hard against that being the only strategy for an ameliorative kind of anger. So I, what I, so what I love about the book is the way I think it develops. What I don't develop in my book is that there's clearly recognition, respect, anger, 
and righteous anger have a very important place in the modern world. That's a, so that's a book that I uh, like. I think that uh, 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 Amiya Srinivasan's work on effective uh, emotions is, uh, I'm sorry, effective injustice is something I've been thinking about a lot. The way, what, the way in which Arlie Hochschild, the um, sociologist, talks about feeling rules. And I think about their different people are uh, unjustly forced sometimes to abide feeling rules that are not uh, applied universally at all. Those are, those are some fun things that I've read lately. And actually, Maisha also has a book coming out on forgiveness soon, which I will write, I recommend uh, that will be out pretty shortly. As far as my own thing, I'm doing a, uh, a book with a bunch of people called The Happiness Agenda. So I'm actually looking at um, this worldwide movement to track happiness and to uh, promote it as a matter of public policy. And the subtitle of the book is Happiness is Not the Answer. And it's an argument against um, um, uh, the sort of idea that happiness is a summum bonum and that you can track it empirically very easily in a way that's, uh, um, and again, it brings the team of authors who I'm with, Joe Ledeux, who's a cognitive neuroscientist, Dan Habron, who you know, um, Michelle Moody Adams, Yolanda Wilson, these are other philosophers, and a few psychologists who I won't mention because we're a philosophy show. Um, <laughs> so um, that's what I'm up to. Oh, great. Wow, that sounds, I like that. Debunk the American insistence. We have to always pretend we're happy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, all right, well, thanks so much for coming on, Owen. This was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. I, I really enjoyed it, Brad. Thank you so much.